we're, we're now moving on a bit in our study. We only have uh, this weekend, next Sunday, by the way, as we study out the book of Colossians. We'll, we'll look at it at our midweeks, too. But of the many studies that we've had throughout Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, I would have to say, as, as many of them have captivated me, energized me, astounded me, unfolded God's Word in new ways to me, I would say that perhaps this study, the study of work, as it's laid out by Paul, both in Ephesians 6 and now here in Colossians 3, has been one of the most eye-opening, jaw-dropping moments of being gobsmacked by the Word of God and encouraged by what it is that we're called to be in our everyday lives. Most of what we hear as we sit and listen to different sermons or even read the Bible, most of it is typically things that we think we're going to put into practice in the evenings, on the weekends, right? Love one another, encourage one another, share your faith, be in Bible studies, make sure that discipleship is happening. All those things that we typically see in Scripture as charges of what it is that we're to do happen outside of your work day. And yet, the mass of our life, half of our waking hours, occurs while we are at work typically. And the beauty of this passage is, is that we can't kind of wriggle away from looking at those hours this time. And so in this passage, we're going to look square at the time that we spend at work, whatever that type of work may be, even if it's work in the home, to look at that exact moment in our lives. And, and this is the encouraging part about it as we go to work. Now, before, before I look at the passage itself, I want to share with you three different views of work as exemplified by a medieval parable. And in this medieval parable, a knight is riding across the land, but he notices that there's some activity over the bluff to the side. And so he rides over there. And at first he encounters a man bent over doing some, some masonry work. He's laying bricks. And he says to the man, what are you doing? And the man says, oh, boy, I'm just laying some bricks. Just working, working my day, laying some bricks. So night moves on to the next man he sees. Similar activity, almost the exact same activity. And he says to this man, and what are you doing? And he pops up with excitement. And he says, I am engineering a wall. And not just any wall. I'm engineering one of the most precise walls. I've been recognized for this. I've been called in for such activities as this because of the expertise that I bring to being able to build such a wall as this. And then he moves on to a third man. And he comes up to him, exact same activity. And he thinks, well, let me try it again. That was two different responses. And he asks this man, and what it is that you are doing? And this man stands up. And immediately the knight notices that there are goosebumps that travel down his arm. And the knight is wondering, whoa, what is this man about to say? And with a quiet confidence, and yet an excitement that still bubbles through his voice... He simply looks up to the knight and says, I am building a cathedral to the Lord. And that's the three different approaches that we're going to talk about today as we consider what it is that we do during that nine to five, during that time of our life where we are working. We just lay in bricks. 
Are we full of ourselves because how wonderful our engineered wall is? Or are we humbled and amazed and, and experiencing the goosebumps of realizing I am working for the Lord? Amen. Let's look at this as we look in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Colossians chapter 3. Turn with me to Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Now, it's an interesting passage because it's a passage that begins by addressing slaves. And in order to kind of work our way around this, because it is a bit of a controversial passage, during, sadly, the 18th and 19th centuries, this was one of the passages that, ironically, many in the slave trade, in the awful slave trade of the African slave trade in Western uh, Hemisphere, used to even justify what it is that they were doing. I say ironically because when we, when we recognize who wrote this and why the letter was written to Colossae, the letter was written to Colossae because Paul was already sending a letter to Philemon. Philemon was in this church. And the letter to Philemon was in defense of Onesimus. And that letter was calling Philemon... To forgive the debts of Onesimus. Forgiving the debts of a slave typically meant that that slave was then to be released from bondage. Because about a third of all of the, the, the Roman Empire that was under some sort of bond servanthood was under it because of some sort of a debt situation. And here we have in the very same letter that was accompanied, most likely accompanied as Epaphras brought it back to Colossae. We, we have in the same packet of letters... The letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon. So at the very moment that Paul has an agenda, his initial agenda for Ephesians, Philippians and uh, Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon all to be written. And the same agenda was all for the sake of freeing a slave. Right. Amazingly, right? And, and by the way, if there's any doubt that that what was going on in the African slave trade was abhorrent. Is it any wonder that the, the great abolitionists were all Christian that brought about the, the emancipation? Right. And, and also, it's also very telling and it's deep when, when we recognize when Jesus teaches Christians to pray in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. One of the things that he says is you come to that turning point in your prayer where you say, Father... Forgive my debts. But then there's a very particular clause. Just as I have forgiven those who have debts against me. If you are a master of a slave brought into servitude because of a bondservant debt, that's a difficult prayer for you to pray. But yet Matthew 18 informs us on that as well. That if God has forgiven you your debts and has brought you out of the prison of debt, and then you turn around and seek to put someone else in prison because of the debt they have against you, well, then you for forget about the forgiveness that was brought your way, that was just mentioned earlier. Uh, again, when we take the real look at the Bible again and again, the, the Bible is no fan of slavery. As a matter of fact, Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, gain it. But that's not his agenda here. His agenda here is, all right, if, if you are a slave, what should be your attitude? 
In other parts of the Bible, yes, we do have some great passages that talk about making sure that we do loose the chains and be able to forgive the debts. But here he's saying, if you are a slave, then here's your deal. And slavery, again, as I said, it, it was very different than African uh, 18th century slavery. It was typically not for life. And it was not in any way race-based. It could have been anyone. I think I've already mentioned this. It could have been Seneca, could have been Cicero, could have been some of the great thinkers. At, at different times, some of the most famous philosophers even in the Roman Empire were slaves. Some of the physicians, the lawyers, slaves, astoundingly so. But, but yet today, it probably is not a bad parallel to look at this passage as a worker, an employee, a, a, a nine-to-fiver. Hey, here is what my advice to you is if you're in Colossians as a slave or if you're in Hampton Roads as an employee. So slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Wow. And do it. Not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart. That word sincerity there is also used by Jesus, by the way, back in Matthew 6. And it's when he talks about that if, you're, if your eye is sincere, if your eye is one, is, is kind of more the literal change there. And it's the same thing, that when you serve here, if you serve with a sincerity, a oneness, an integrity of heart. But it also is the very word that results in being generous. And so Jesus says, if your eye is generous, won't that light within your whole body be, be filled with light? That's the Sermon on the Mount rendering of the same word. Here, when Paul uses it, it is this idea that when you work, you do it with a generosity and an integrity and a, a solidness in the way that you go about it but with a sincerity of heart and a reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, wholeheartedly, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. I love that passage. It is the Lord you are serving. Ephesians says it's as if you are working for the Lord. Here, it's pretty clear. It's not as if you are working for the Lord in your 9 to 5. It is the Lord for whom you are working. Clearly. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. Because you're working for the Lord. And there is no favoritism. Now, as he mentions favoritism, he then quickly realizes, well, let me, let me address this to masters as well. Because you're all going to appear before the judgment seat of God. And masters, you provide for your slaves what is fair and right because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Right. Now, as we go back to this idea of whether you're just laying some bricks or puffed up with your amazing engineering capabilities or humbled and astounded that you are building a cathedral to the Lord, and we'll, we'll take each of those in turn today, I want to look at those under three different points. My, my first one is the error of the idol. My second one is the terror of the idol. Different word idol there. And the third one is the dignity of the ideal. Let me, let me begin with the error of the idol. And as we look at this, I want you to, I want you to think here about why it is that you might go to work with the attitude of that first man in our parable as, you know what? I'm just laying some bricks. 
And it's just what I got to do. And I think for a lot of us, we can end up with that error in our view of work. And it's important that we don't just read the word work here and put our own sensibility into that word. We've got to let the Bible define what work really means. And, and our understanding of work, our theology of work, our doctrine of work has got to come from the Bible. And, and it's very easy to, to kind of get that off. As a matter of fact, the very passage that kind of governs this whole section, and we skipped a little bit here that we'll talk about on Tuesday, but it is in verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or work, uh, the, the word for work there is ergon. We get ergonometer, ergonomics, etc., which is all units of work. Whatever you do, whether in word or work, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through Him. Hey, whatever you say, whatever you put your hand to do, whatever it is that your mind is called to do as you work, do it all with thanksgiving, overflowing at every turn. This is important because it obviously means that somehow work is meant to be some cause for gratitude and thanksgiving. That work has some sort of a dignity to it that perhaps we're missing when we get caught up in the error of the idol. Now, I think there's three main reasons why we might get this doctrine of work off. The first is the idea that it's just a necessary nuisance. Just got to do it to pay the bills. And, and sometimes people don't even call it a necessary nu nuisance. This is what I hear a lot. And I've talked to people a lot about this in the last six months. Is it's just a necessary evil. Just stuck having to, like, it's just my lot in life. You know, I'm an adult now. Got to go to work. It's what I got to do. You know, I, I wish I didn't have to do it. I'm going to, you know, kind of do it. Check in, check out. And then get back to, to what I really want to do with my life. But... Part of that comes from the idea that many people have the perception that work itself is a curse. And that work is even cursed by God. That would be like saying prayer is cursed by God. Because communication with God is now harder than it was before the fall. And I'll show you a passage that talks about that one in a little bit. But when we look at... God's original plan before the fall, the beautiful layout of God in paradise. It says in Genesis 1, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Amen. That word subdue is interesting. We'll come back to it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when this is all concluded in verse 31, at the end of a seven-day work week, which God invented, and on the seventh day he rest, and at the end of this, that, that sixth day, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God invented work. God is introduced to us in the scriptures as a worker. And when he then moves on to make us in his image, the Lord took man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So God is introduced as one who is tilling the soil, 
cultivating the ground, watering the garden. It is God who is presented when we first see God. If there's a metaphor of an occupation where we see God, isn't it interesting that what he's shown as is as a worker, as a, as a gardener. Term, the term of work is used repeatedly throughout Genesis 1 and 2. Both the word for just kind of raw, unskilled, work with your hands type work, as well as craftsman type work. Both are used as they are describing the great work that God does and the great work that He has appointed for us to do as well. But now, this idea of God having created the world, but yet we still need to subdue it, is the idea that He has begun the work of this world, but that it is going to be completed through His image bearers. Through Adam, through Eve, through all of humanity, as His image bearers, we do what He does, we go to work. And it's an amazing work that we get to do. The, the idea of subduing the earth is, is the idea of not just being like a... Well, when you think of the earth, it's, it's not like the idea of being like a park ranger. You know, a park ranger is, is passive and, and it makes sure that nothing happens to all of creation. That's not what God is saying here. You're, you're not to like leave nothing but footprints and take nothing but photos. Rather, you are to do something to this park. You're going to do something to this creation. And it's not just the park ranger. And on the flip side of it, it's not the kind of the, the, the greedy developer either. You're not to pave over this whole thing either, but that you are to take from it the resources. You are to cultivate it. You're to create culture. You're to create cities. You are to bring it to the fullness of life. Adam and Eve were meant to split the atom. Yes. Adam and Eve were meant to cultivate the earth, and to bring it into the fullness of all that it was very much meant to be. Well, what is it that a gardener does? He, he digs up the ground, he rearranges it with a goal in mind. You rearrange the raw material of the garden so it produces food, flowers, and even beauty. And that's the pattern for all work. It's creative and it's assertive. It's rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. That's the beauty of work. You were created by God to do work. And it is not a curse. It is a greatness that is within you. It is the imago Dei, the image of God that you bear, that you are actually called to work. Amen. But what about the curse? What about that? Well, in Genesis 3, I'll I'll read it to you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is not work that is cursed. It is mankind that is cursed because we rebelled against God. And it is creation itself that is cursed as well. The, the ground is cursed. The creation itself is cursed. But here's the beauty of it all. Ultimately, God has a plan through Jesus to redeem not only you and me and, and all of, of humanity, but he has a plan to redeem creation itself. Right. It's why in, in, in Romans 8, 
starting in verse 19, the Bible reads that all creation awaits its reclamation project by God. All of it will be made new. All of it will look like paradise again. We don't just kind of have all of this dissolve and we start to float on clouds and that's the the life to come. But God is pro-physical. God is pro-earth. God is pro-material. It is very good in the eyes of God and He wants it reclaimed. And that's why Romans 8 talks about a recreation of this earth, creation itself. When the new age comes, we don't go up to be with God. Revelation says God comes down to be with us. And all of this will then be brought into fullness. And it's because of some sort of an odd platonic thinking. Plato was one who proposed the idea that all things spiritual are good. All things physical and earthy are bad. And that has kind of pervaded its way through so many different philosophies and even versions of Christianity that the, you know, the cartoons that we were weaned on as kids where the cat dies nine times and every time of those nine times it ends up you know, in heaven on a cloud strumming a harp. And so that begins our view of like, oh, I guess that's what happens. Uh, that, that the age to come, the, the ultimate of, of where we go after uh, Jesus returns and all is reclaimed is that we're on a, on a cloud strumming a harp. No, no, no. That's a platonic idea. And, and remember, every stripe of Christianity, believe, this is not some edge case odd idea. Every denomination, every mainstream Christian idea always looks forward to a new earth as well as a new heaven. God come down with us where suddenly all of this is paradise again, where we do work again. Amen. Now, again, this idea of maybe it's just a nuisance, maybe it's just a necessary evil. Work is not just that for you. It was part of God's perfect design for human life. And because we're made in his image, and it is part of his glory and happiness that he works. And as the son of God works, he even says, my father is always at work to this very day. And I am working too. That's the nature of God. It's the nature of Jesus. And by the way, well, I'll give you a second. That, that's John five seventeen. Without meaningful work, I think we all sense significant inner loss and even some emptiness. As a matter of fact, they've done plenty of studies. The people who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons, they quickly discover how much they need significant work to thrive emotionally, physically, spiritually. People in nursing homes who have more time on their hands than perhaps they like, one of the things that they often say is that, I I wish there was something more meaningful that I could do with my hands, with my mind, to produce in some way or another. Yes, as you are kind of beat down by the soul-sucking nine-to-five activities that you perceive to be your everyday life, and you think, oh man, if I could just only have the hammock and the coconut with the umbrella in it and just swing it in the breeze, if, if I could just have that, oh, would I then be self-actualized? Actually, those who end up in that place end up yearning to be able to do something significant again that, that really does produce as, as we're made by God to be able to do so. You know, we don't merely work to make money. We need work itself to live fully human lives. Um, in, in the book, Why Work? Dorothy Sayers writes, What is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's abilities. It is the medium. Work is the medium in which he or she offers 
themselves to God. It's a beautiful thought. Work is the medium in which you offer yourself to God. The idea that it's just a necessary evil doesn't really hold water, especially when we realize it is not work itself that is cursed. The parallel idea would be to say that prayer is cursed. Nobody would say that. Prayer delights God. God knows that, yes, you need to have shameless audacity, as Luke 11 says in your prayers. That, yes, it, it is by the sweat of your brow that, that Jesus prayed in the garden. And it is by the sweat of your brow that you now work. But, but that activity of work is so divine and so in alignment with God, the fact that it is hard is, is not because work itself is cursed any more than prayer itself is cursed. In the age to come, when all is renewed, Isaiah 65 says that when you even begin to pray, I'm going to be already there answering it. Even as you have the thought, we're going to go ahead and be in communion and in communication with one another. I think the way that you think of prayer is also a a helpful way in the way that you think of work. Before the fall, after the fall, and then after the redemption of all things when Jesus returns. So how about our, our, our second idea? So if the first one is work's just a necessary evil, the second one is that I often hear is that It's just a distraction from the divine. A distraction from more noble work that I could be doing. And that many think that while work is cursed, it's something else. Whether it's leisure or family, spiritual pursuits. That's the way to find meaning in life. Well, yes, we do have meaning in life in Christ. But God, in looking at the work that He did and the work that mankind to do looks at it and says, this is good. This is very good. You're subduing the earth. You're cultivating the world. You're developing the earth into what I've always wanted it to be. This is exactly what you are meant to do. It's interesting that we tend to have this kind of dichotomy of spiritual work is good, but yet kind of everyday work is bad. And this distracts me from this over here. But from God's perspective, and as we read about God, we don't see such a distinction as much in God. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, when, when, when Paul is, is writing to the church there, he says only, in verse 70, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And this is in the subject matter of whether you're a slave as well in this passage. And so if you're a worker, but here's what's interesting to which you have been assigned and to which you have been called. Kaleo. Those are the words that are spoken of of divine calling. When a prophet is called, when an evangelist is called, when Jesus calls his disciples, it is the same theologically packed word that is being used here. That Yeah, but I'm, I've been called to Burger King. Yes, you've been called. And it is a calling. I'm wearing a paper hat. Ding fries are done. Ding fries are done. I'm called to... Yes, that is a calling. It is a divine calling that that we begin to make better sense of, that we'll continue to make better sense of as we look through here. You know, it it is interesting. He does say later on, were you a bondservant when you were called? Now he uses the word to be when you were called by Christ into a life of sublime transformation into the very image of Jesus. The very same word. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, go ahead and do it. But but check this out. So you being called to Jesus is the same concept as you being called to Burger King. 
That that is God's good and pleasing will that you have ended up in a place of work and a place where you can express the image of God through yourself for Him. Now let's get to that. That's the third, the third uh, objection. So the first objection is necessary nuisance. Second objection, distraction from divine. Third, uh, d- the, the third excuse that we give for, for being idle or, or not kind of working wholeheartedly, not working as if we're working for the Lord, is, let's just put it in two words, Taco Bell. Uh-oh. I work at Taco Bell. You're trying to tell me that all of this kind of transformational, glorious affirmation language that you're using right there applies to me making your bean burrito fresco style and wrapping it in a piece of translucent paper and putting it to you on a plastic tray and then ringing you up. That all applies to such grand schemes of God to subdue the world and cultivate it. Yes, it does. Because I think that almost any work that you can think of aligns you with the very image of God that is yours. Whether you hold in your hand a spatula, a shovel, a scalpel, a stylus, whatever it might be, what you do is inherently creative. It also brings order out of chaos. And it is inherently selfless service. The very things of God. And, and by the way, anytime that you make that bean burrito, that didn't exist before you created it. But it's just a bean burrito. Yes, but you exercised the image of God within you in your creativity to flip that burger or roll that burrito. Yes, you did. And you know what else you were doing at that moment that you're making that bean burrito rather than sitting on your couch and flipping channels and collecting your lottery money? You were exercising the image of God because you were selflessly serving society. The very thing that God does. And, and you know what else you were doing when you were sweeping the floors later and, and mopping up after that, that two-year-old had, had spilt all of his uh, chalupas all over the place? I don't even know what a chalupa is. May not even be a real word. <laughs> when you were sweeping up that chalupa, you, like God, were creating order out of chaos. You can look at it your way, or you can look at it the Bible's way. But if you look at it your way, as a nuisance, as a distraction, as demeaning, well, then you're going to end up. Spending the rest of your life laying bricks, saying, I'm just laying bricks. Just putting in my nine to five. I'm just enduring it for what it is that I get to to do later. Why not reclaim the very heart of your life? The nine to five, the bulk of the... Why not reclaim that and recognize what it really is? It is grand expression of the image of God by which you have been made to serve Him. You are made to work. You are made to bring cultivation. You are made to bring culture. You are made to bring order out of chaos. You are made to be creative. You are made to selflessly serve. And we all do that no matter what we do in our workplace. And by the way, what's interesting is when God came to earth in Jesus, people have uh, looked at this over the years. The Greek idea of God coming to earth would have been one as a, as a, a grand conqueror. The Roman idea 
would have been as a wise statesman. But he came much to confound the Hebrew idea as a drywaller, as a framer, as a mason. Jesus came as a builder. The first time that we see God in Genesis 1, we see him as a gardener. And the next time we see God, we see him as a builder. Those are the two jobs we outsource as Americans. And those are the two jobs God chose. It's the, the manual labor. What we would consider demeaning is so honorable that those are the jobs that God came to do. Jesus came. He commuted day after day from Nazareth to Sephora. 3.4 miles. Day in, day out. But why did he come as a child? Why did he spend all of his teenage and 20s? Why did he do all of that working every day and resting on the seventh day? Why did he do all of that? To be able to establish a record of righteousness that would be yours. So that ultimately when you're redeemed, you're redeemed and credited with a resume of that work ethic of Jesus Christ. Because God wants you to have no lack of confidence as you become before the throne to serve Him, or no lack of confidence as you get into His world to subdue it and cultivate it, to recognize, I do so having been redeemed. Jesus came back to redeem the earth. He came, and it's already guaranteed according to Romans 8. And He's already come back to redeem me. And if the earth is going to be redeemed and I'm redeemed, well then work benefits from all of that. And boy will it benefit when the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God is finally realized. Now, I said that's, that's one side of the error, is the error of the idol. But then there's also the terror of the idol. I-D-O-L. And this man, of course, pops up and is rather proud of himself to say, look at this wall. Put your plumb line here. Go ahead, look at it. There's a reason why, from miles around, I'm in great demand. There's a reason why these fellows keep coming over here to learn the secrets of the trade from me and how I build this wall. And what is that other error of work? Well, it's the, it's the error of perhaps loving your work just a little bit too much. It's the error of losing sight of the fact that you work as if you're working for the Lord. Yeah, you may not be, in a sense, working for men so that, that, uh, that their eyes are on you, but you do work for men to be able to curry their favor, to get their acclaim. And if your work is the reason why you have identity, and if you just think, if I could just get the next position in the Navy, if I could just get the, the, the next promotion at my job, then I will really feel good about myself. If that's the case, well, then you've fallen under an idol. Anything that gives you security, identity, or deliverance or actualization is by definition your idol. Right. And the only thing that's to give that to us is Jesus. God so loved Micah Payne that he gave his one and only son so that he who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right. How much more affirmation does one young man need right. than the God creator of the universe disrupting his life to affirm to him, I'm giving you my son to let you know your value. And so even if you do become an amazing rap star, even if, you look like you could be one, even if, 
no matter what it is that you achieve, that will pale in significance to what it is that Christ has affirmed in you. But here's the scary part, is that anything that we begin to worship as an idol, we put our trust in, we, we seek for our deliverance, anything that we hang on to like that, it begins to transform us. That's the terror of this idol. And if it is your work, that is your identity, it is your work, that is your security, well then the things that you will do to curry favor with men, the things that you will do to have a greater image while you're there, become to distort you and twist you. And it is not a, a, a soul-sucking activity in this case. It is a soul-polluting activity at this case. That you then are going to compromise. You're going to lose integrity. You're not going to work haplos, as it says here. You're not going to work with sincerity. You instead will cut corners, do whatever it takes to maintain your standing, to maintain your image, to maintain your security. And the compromises that will eat away at your soul are frightening. But we're not here to focus on either the error of the idol or the terror of the idol, but to look at what Jesus calls us to, the dignity of the ideal. Here's the beauty of this. You know, in Isaiah 65, the Bible reads, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. God's working. I will rejoice over Jerusalem, take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be in it an infant, but a few days, uh, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. They will build houses and dwell in them. This is the age to come. This is the redeemed earth. This is the fulfillment of all things. This is eschatology that is being brought to bear here, chiefly in Isaiah 65. What's going to happen when all is redeemed, when Jesus fulfills all of this? You are going to go to work. Now it's going to be wonderful work. And this is how it's described. You will build houses and dwell in them. You will plant vineyards and you will eat its fruit. No longer will you build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. When we're redeemed, when the earth is redeemed, we will look at our work as God looked at his work pre-fall and says, it is good. It is very good. So even now, I actually have goosebumps thinking about that we get to work. We get to be God's chosen vessels. And we get this inheritance from the Lord. When you go to work, it's not just enough to go to work and think, well, let me try to at least reach out to the people at my workplace. Yes, do that. It's not enough to say, oh, let me go to my workplace and make enough money so I can support the work of Jesus through my church or through whatever it might be. That's not good enough. If you really want to be transformative at your workplace, if you want people to step back and wonder what it is that they're experiencing because they are coming in contact with something divine, with the image of God, then it's not just enough for you to go to work, even for those fairly good reasons. You need to go to work 
Because it's what God has always meant for you to do. Because even at Taco Bell, even at Sentara, even at the Naval Yard, even in the ship, you are in fact working for Jesus. You are doing the work of Jesus in cultivating this world and selflessly serving others and expressing your creativity and bringing order out of chaos. And so, no matter what it is that you do to close out, make a statement. Make a statement with your everyday life. Build a cathedral. With every burger you flip, with every espresso you roast, with every line of code you write, with every memo you craft, every floor you sweep, every patient you comfort, every order you process, customer you invoice, meter you read, diaper you change, with whatever brick you lay into place, build a cathedral to the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Amen. Amen.